0: Are listening to Suno. Dr. Harini Nagendra developed a lifelong fascination for urban nature during long slow rambles through streets and parks of the big cities of India. Led by her parents, Harini paused every few feet to examine a tree or plant that looked interesting and carefully disassembled and examined the interiors of leaves, flowers, and fruits. While her botanist mother would offer her informed responses to her curiosity, her father, who had zero knowledge of botany, marched her briskly through tree-covered avenues on a mist-filled or rain-washed Sunday. She relives those wistful childhood memories and repays her parents by taking her daughter on similar meandering strolls along what remains of the once lush arboreal walkways of Bangalore. Harini is now a professor of sustainability at Azim Premji University, Bangalore. She led the initiative to reclaim Kaigondana Hallikere, a lake on the outskirts of Bangalore, which was once fast deteriorating, but since been nursed back to health. Harini speaks to Suno on her latest book, Nature in the City, in which she traces the natural history of Bangalore and dispels many myths surrounding the name of Bengaluru.
1: We would like to ask you questions about the book and also about your work in general so that will be very interesting because it's way past where there's no written account so it would be very interesting how you're able to reconstruct it and share it with our listeners so first question you talk about prehistoric records and uh, about uh, the old stone age neolithic period some settlements in uh, bangalore can you talk about them a little bit how you were able to sort of bring them up into the context of your book.
2: Right. So, we one of the things I was interested in while looking at Bangalore, we're looking at the history of a city. But this landscape was settled long before it was a city or a town. And uh, in 1537, we know Kempecoda built the market town of uh, Bengaluru, And we want, I was curious to know what there was before this. So, in fact, it turns out that there's a lot uh, that is really prehistoric. So, There are Neolithic and Megalithic stone tombs that are there in the landscape around Hali. So there are references to these large burial sites, canes and different kinds of burial sites, some of which I've also seen in the field, which tell you clearly that there were very old settlements in this region. But unfortunately, we don't know anything now about the ecological history or anything about these people, apart from the fact that they were clearly there because these burial sites were there. There's also some reference to the fact that in uh, the time of the Romans, so maybe 2nd century BC to about 1st century AD, there are caches of Roman coins that people have dug up in various parts around Devanhali again, Jalahalli, areas within the city also during the metro construction, they recently found some Roman coins. Mm -hmm. And they find these large, uh, actually caches, jars full of coins, suggesting that Mm -hmm. that it was not just an occasional thing, but there was substantial trade somewhere. So these actually suggest from historians of that time, suggest that Bangalore was somewhere part of an overland trade route that probably connected some two parts of the east and the west of coast together. Mm-hmm. And because otherwise you can't explain so many
1: coins in this place. Right. You mentioned Augustus, Tiberius, yes, yes, exactly. Caligula and all that in your yes, book, right? right? And so do you think that it's like people settle it, then they leave the place and it gets overgrown with bush and you know the kinds of... Uh, flora and then they settle it again is it that kind of a thing or once it is settled it begins to slowly expand how do you look at it
2: that's very interesting i don't know and i don't know if actually we have any knowledge of this it seems more like there is uh, some kind of continuity because if you're looking at this these roman coins augustus and so that is uh, you know turn of the um, so either so bc to ce but and soon after that, by about the sixth century CE, you start getting uh, uh, inscriptions from the Ganga dynasty on copper plates that tell you people were there. So there's about four hundred century gap that we don't really have any information from. But it, it's more likely, I would think, if it really was such a marketed trade route, that there must have been something going on, some activity in this area that we didn't really record. But it's also possible that, you know, it was abandoned entry. we just don't know do hmm.
1: enough. You speculate that a lot of cotton was being grown <laughs> around or somewhere it, it was a conduit for or a station for the passage of cotton goods cotton uh, and on textiles. the way. Yeah,
2: that's what you see. So Sewell, Robert Sewell, who's the researcher who uh, wrote in the early part of the 20th century on these Roman coins, that's what he speculates. That actually this entire area of the Deccan was apparently a hotspot for textile trade. Hmm. Which fits with the fact that we know that later on, anyway, Bengaluru was very well known for this textile uh, trade and textile markets. So he suspects that this site was an overland trade route, but trade route of what? Of textiles possibly that moved from one part, from West Coast to East Coast.
1: And you talk of these three different dynasties. There is the Gangas and Cholas, Vijayanagar. There is a Soladevan Haldi. Is it? Somewhere linked to Cholas and just as an aside.
2: It must be because Sola, Chola, these are all, uh, I mean, it's the same word basically just pronounced in slightly different ways.
1: So is there a continuity between the Ganga and the Cholas and the Vijayanagara?
2: Again, if you look at what the inscriptions tell you, so there were a lot of things going on in this this entire Deccan. uh, You know, there were different Hmm. uh, kings and smaller principalities. why so there were the Gangas, there were the Cholas, there were the Rashtrakutas, there were the then the Hoysalas came, then there were the Vijayanagara Empire. There was definitely a lot of overlap in some senses. That is the chieftains, the petty chieftains who ruled Bengaluru and all the little forts and areas around them probably remained the same. They just kept transferring their allegiance from one, uh, you know, king, mm. larger king to the Because not like the Gangas had an empire directly in Bangalore, not in the Cholas or the Hoysalas. Mm. Their region, uh, their main capital was somewhere else. It's just that these uh, petty chieftains owed sovereignty or whatever. Feudal, they were feudal chieftains and then there was a structure wherein they would pay some amount of tax to these uh, larger uh, you know, kings hmm. and rulers. So there's probably a lot of continuity at that level.
1: And you talk of the name Bengaluru hmm. as being really very old and
0: uh, hmm. That, hmm.
1: it is mentioned in a, a stone in what do you call Begur them? Inscription. Begur inscription. Yes. Yes. So um, where does that leave uh, the legends that come after that?
2: What I found very interesting while looking at the book of about Bengaluru is uh, really how little that we know that can be verified. Like we have a lot of oral stories and narratives and myths and you, you know, for instance, uh, one of the older ones is uh, the fact that uh, Tempegora came in 1537 and created the Bengaluru Dino, novo, this mm-hmm. land that was then if you look at inscriptions from these four dynasties, Gangas, Chodas, Hoisaras, Vijayanagar Empire, it's very clear that there were at least 75 villages in the area around Bengaluru thriving with market networks, with trade, with lakes, with orchards, with paddy, with taxes and you know, tax treaties and battles from one region to another. All of this was going on. So quite naturally, Kempegowda could not really construct a market town de novo on a barren landscape. He would do Mm -hmm. it in a place where there was already thriving activity. Mm -hmm. And uh, similarly, if you're looking at the other kinds of, uh, you know, uh, things that were going on, there was a lot that was going on in this landscape. So Bengaluru, the apocryphal uh, apocryphal story is that uh, Veera Ballala, uh, who was a king uh, ruling some area close to Bengaluru, much Mm -hmm. prior to Kempe was hunting one day and got lost in the forest. And uh, an old woman gave him shelter in a humble hut and gave him boiled beans. Bend the and he mm. became Bend the you know, Uru. Mm. And but Biravalnala was, um, you know, in the 11th, 12th centuries. And uh, if you look at, there's a Begur inscription from 890 AD, mm. which talks about the battle of Bengaluru. So clearly, this area or parts of the city were already called Bengaluru, predating that. So it's not like he created this uh, thing. Mm. Then there are other uh, people stories. People say that it was called Bengaluru because of Benga, the Benga tree, Terocarpus marsupium, which is uh, has a particular kind of redwood. Other people say that when Kempecada built the city, they he burnt the forest all around to create the area and you know construction material. And so that barren landscape, Benchinakalu, or the burnt kind of uh, 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 Kallu, Benchinakalu burnt kind of granite stones. That was why it was called Bengaluru. Hmm. These are all theories and speculations. We really don't know what it is but what we do know is definitely by 890 AD hmm. the area around Begur was called Bengaluru.
1: It's very interesting how uh, you know when you look at uh, the story of Bangalore. it also gives us an idea of how history gets written, how his history gets Subverted. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. people will not allow it to be subverted because there is so much invested in the very name of Bengaluru, right? right. You know, so, uh, so, which means that in some way you could say that uh, Kempegoda actually expropriated, already settled things and he probably gave it some kind of a <coughs> political contour and then, you know, would, would that be a right thing to say?
2: Definitely. And in fact, uh, see when Kempegoda actually created the, the city or market town of Bengaluru, the Vijayagara king that he swore fealty to was Achyuta Devaraya, that is Krishna Devaraya's brother. He was so pleased with him at that point that he gave him several villages in and around Bangalore as a jagir. Hmm. So he got, uh, you know, the tax revenue from those villages and that helped him really maintain the city. So he couldn't have created the city without these villages for, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. that was, he, he built on this uh, very strategically and very smartly as he had to do, you know, as everybody was doing at that time. And I was very pleased because he mentions in that grant that he is very happy that somebody is actually civilizing the land and creating more opportunities for commerce around
1: this place. Okay. And coming to your uh, urban uh, history of uh, ecology, now the place names, do you think uh, the place names uh, will have something to suggest about the, the nature of uh, uh, the ecology, the, the flora, fauna, whatever that existed is there some way in which because um they they tend to, uh, for right. example you do mention hmm. in your book so
2: uh, there is a lot that you can get of the ecological character of this landscape just from the names definitely hmm. so for instance we think of nagar bhavi obviously they had stones i mean the snakes at that hmm. point hmm. because that was the Na- Nagar and bhavi there was a there were wells also in that area so that was a source of water if you are looking at other places that you uh, can see, for instance, there's Avati, which is uh, close to beyond Devinhandi. Mm-hmm. And that is a place where uh, Kempegoda's ancestors first were believed to have come into this region. Now, there is a story there which says that uh, one of the Kempegoda's ancestors, were, as a child, was a baby being swung on a tree. Some people say that tree was an Attimara. And uh, then the, uh, when uh, his parents came to look for him in the afternoon, they found that there was a sun that sh- was going to shine strong on the baby's face. So there was a snake that had climbed to the tree and was spreading his hood over the baby to shield it from the sun. Hmm. And so the name Havu Hatti or hmm. uh, it could hmm. be the snake that climbed the tree or it could be Havu and Atti because it climbed an Ati Mara. Hmm. So that Havu Hatti became or Havu Atti became Avati. Which is what the place is known like today. So the number of these little stories that you find in these in this landscape that gives you a sense of the hmm. how ecology was important. What I find interesting in the story of uh, Bengaluru, whether it was Benje or uh, Benga Maraduru or Bendakali hmm. is the fact that ecology is central somehow to the and the landscape and the character hmm. has really woven its name into the fabric of the name hmm. itself.
1: Hmm and you talk about the east southeast being because of the uh, undulating and uh, not is uh, not very rocky mm. being settled and only very much later um, the uh, western part which is more uh, rocky with uh, you know various yes. uh, precipices uh, inaccessible terrain that was settled much later you say uh, how do you come to this kind of a decision
2: so from the 6th century ad onwards you actually get a lot of inscriptions from this landscape. You get inscriptions on stone. You get inscriptions on copper plates. If you look at this, these uh, inscriptions, you get a sense of uh, the time at which this landscape was uh, first colonized and later colonized. So, if you can put that together, you can put this together in a three-dimensional map of the landscape, which gives you a sense of terrain. And if you, it's very clear if you look at such a three-dimensional or topographic map, as you speak, uh, as you call it, of the city. That there are two parts of, the, of Bengaluru. The part on the west is more rocky, as you said, with the granite outcrops and big, you know, granite boulders. That is what people call the malnad. Malnad being more rocky, rocky kind of terrain. And if you look at old uh, British accounts of the city, they say that people told them that this was the malnad part of the city, which is rocky. It's in the rain shadow region of the Western Ghats, and it gets less rainfall. The soil they say is much thinner, and the kind of uh, Trees, therefore, the vegetation here is more scrubby and thorny. If you look at the area to the east, it's what they call the maidan, which is more grassy, you know, and it tends to get more rainfall. The soil is more fertile. And it's more, uh, the vegetation is not as thorny and therefore it's easier to clear. And so if you look at the inscriptions, uh, this is what you see in the the earliest, so 6th century to about uh, 8th century, you start finding people are really only settling down in the maidan they come in and uh, you know they colonize the place they start having settled agriculture from then onwards you start seeing the people slowly steadily start moving into the western part of the city which is more rocky as they start running out of space really they get pushed up and further and further up into the higher regions as new villages get established but there's a difference in the kinds of activities that the landscape permits so if you look at the areas that are in the plains they really allow for more uh, Creation of lakes because this area doesn't have water. You know, Bangalore is large from a... uh, Distant Mm -hmm. from a large river. So they get water by rainwater harvesting. They create these lakes or tanks in the landscape uh, and clear the jungle, scoop out the mud and uh, have paddy, basically paddy agriculture that they, you know, which is irrigated. And in the Malnad, the western part with the rocky areas, what they do is they have cattle herds. Because that's what you do in a rocky landscape. You can't clear it, you can't grow... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can't have agriculture that is so easy to to manage. And uh, therefore you have this kind of cattle that you send in into jungles and the stones there record uh, different stories. They're not stories of land grants, of paddy, cultivation, of creation of lakes. They're instead stories of cattle raids, mm. of people who die, heroes that die because of battles with wild beasts, of tigers, of wild mm. boar. And uh, in fact, it's interesting that landscape, is also the landscape which is close to the Bandipur Tiger Reserve today, But you still have, uh, you know, obviously a very high population of wild uh, animals. So mm-hmm. if there's a very different uh, landscape on the wea- west and the east, which comes out through the careful study of these inscriptions.
1: You talk about uh, after the the Kempegowda's came here, then much later in the 17th century you had the Marathas. Hmm. So each one is dispossessed. Of their uh, right. rights over this land, as it goes, that's yes. how it yes. historically. That's so. You have actually quoted a very beautiful piece of poetry in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is it uh, ascribed to? So in uh,
2: 1638, uh, Shahji, who was Shivaji's father, uh, came at the head of an army of the Sultanate of Bijapur. So they were trying to acquire a large part of this landscape, Deccan landscape. And he came on this uh, you know, uh, battle to Bengaluru after having conquered a long, number of smaller forts around this area. And then he took over Bengaluru, which they called Rule in, the, in 1638 and ruled until his death. So in fact, Shivaji gets married here in Bangalore. He wills the property. He wills Bangalore then to his uh, younger son, Venkoji. And uh, during this entire process of his uh, stay here, his court poet Parmanand records this lovely poem about his life. So the poem itself was uh, attributed to 1670, but it's talking about uh, Shaji's time in Bangalore, which is presumably sometime in the early 1640s. Hmm. And as you said, it's a beautiful description of uh, Bangalore. I got it translated, uh, which is so It's a Sanskrit poem. And uh, it talks about Bangalore, which is a, you know, a city with large lakes as big as seas. It is dotted with massive parks. It has houses that are graceful because of the creepers, flowering creepers that adorn them. Mm. And they have fruit trees in their backyard. There are peacocks. There are pigeons. It gives you a very nice sense of an ecological landscape that was very similar in character to what we think of of the Bangalore, mm. the Garden City, up till the 1980s, 1990s, mm. with these lakes, the parks, uh, right, trees right. on the road that give you shade, fruit trees and creepers in gardens, and mm. you
3: know,
2: uh, so, these uh, wildlife. Peacocks actually were in Bangalore in uh, till the 1980s or so, and even now in some areas in you know near Jalahalli and, and you still do find them coming.
1: in. So. Some of the very old records you talk about, there there are names. What languages uh, are these inscriptions in?
2: Very mixed. If you look at the inscriptions, so many of the Chola inscriptions are in Tamil, for instance. Mm-hmm. So there's Kannada, there's Tamil, there's Telugu, there is Sanskrit, there is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what, uh, so there are other the number of other languages also that come in there's some mm. Arabic and Persian inscriptions mm. and uh, you know so sort of a variety of things that so
1: what's know. the nature of uh, the attitude of these uh, uh, people who organized I mean who politically were uh, masters here mm-hmm. what was their attitude towards nature and Wait, so In, I mean, to... uh, this is by hindsight, obviously, right, it's we a very it. presumptuous. You uh, have of to thing.
2: read between the lines to sort of sense their uh, attitudes. But it's uh, interesting. Some of the so, when you look at the lakes, for instance, some of these lakes were clearly created or maintained by kings. So Agara Lake there's a inscription from the mid ninth century, which talks about uh, Ganga king's son, who actually you know gave some land grant to somebody for a cart to be maintained to take out the. Silt from the lake, and uh, maintained work. the lakes, cleared the channels, um, granted the tax grants. So you can see that the kings paid great attention to this, and uh, some of the incentives they used were tax grants. So they called them bituatta. Basically, if you created a lake or maintained a lake, the rights to the irrigation irrigated paddy that you would have to pay higher tax. But you would have a right not to pay that high tax. So you would get a tax waiver for two, three years. Hmm. So they did this economic balance of, you know, so the landscape would be cultivated and cultivable and people would maintain it. You would give you a tax incentive. Sometimes local communities maintained it. And there are, you know, stories of wealthy merchants, for instance, uh, who a merchant and his wife who would maintain, who maintained one of the lakes in uh, Domlur. Uh, but uh, they did it for merit. Merit of their 21 generations and uh, there's other f- other people that they knew and their 21 generations in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. But there's also one, for instance, of a woman who made, who creates a tank just so that uh, it's for the birds, the animals, the cattle, and for the sun and the moon. You know? mm-hmm. And then there is, uh, for instance, one lake called Sulikunda. Now, suli, of course, in, uh, in Kannada means prostitute. Mm-hmm. And the local story there goes that this woman was a prostitute who used the earnings that she had gained to construct a lake for the community. And if you think of the sacrifice that that actually involves of of Mm. collecting earnings in that form and using them to create a lake, then you get a sense of how much people were invested in this of all kinds. The kings, but also very, you know, just regular people.
1: So it also shows how important a lake was for for Bangalore. Exactly. Especially now the way, the way we have been treating lakes in Bangalore. This is a a kind of lesson to learn from it. And when you, go from this the 16th century to 17th century the colonial rule what was the kind of role they played in uh, nature in organizing Mm -hmm. the flora of this uh, city?
2: The Colonialism brought a very fundamental change in the kind of character of of, uh, the way biodiversity was perceived in the city. In a number of ways. Firstly, they had access to a lot of, of course, because they were, you know, because they had the colonies across the world, they had access to a number of species that they brought in. So they brought in trees from across the world, from Madagascar, from Kenya, from Brazil, from, you know, so many parts of the colonies. From the Kew Gardens, they brought in uh, the chief uh, the gardeners in charge of the Kew had brought in people from Bangalore who were trained in Kew. So they got trained in this very different way of trying to landscape a region. With trees across the world. I mean, uh, landscape Bangalore with trees across the world. But with that, they also brought in a different aesthetic. As we spoke about the lakes, you know, people were had this organic connect to nature. So they not just used the lakes for worship. The, and you know, there were sacred, so obviously there was a god and a temple that they worshipped that. But they got, their horticulture and they extracted flowers and fruits from this landscape. They bathed, they fished, they got firewood, their cattle grazed, they used the muds for making bricks, you know, so variety of things that they did. When the British came in, you clearly see a difference that there's a predominant focus on the aesthetic. And uh, therefore, you know, lakes, for instance, have to be preserved in a way that they are important for recreation. Trees should give you shade. And power starts uh, making itself apparent. So, for instance, uh, if you look at British settlements near uh, New Lakes, for instance, if Alsur Lake was expanded, then you'll find that the British officers stayed near the head of the lake. But uh, more humble native troops were uh, positioned at the bottom where they would receive all the sewage that came in. So they Mm -hmm. would frequently fall sick. And you actually hear some uh, more enlightened British accounts of the time saying that this is not the way Indian villages were constructed. Typically, you'll see that an Indian village was always constructed upstream of the lake so that their sewage, they wouldn't get impacted by the sewage. Hmm. But here you deliberately, you know, have certain places which are impacted by sewage and certainly that are others that are not. But there are other things that they ban as unsightly. So if near piggy Lake, we have some accounts where they say you can't dig wells and you can't excavate mud for house construction by making uh, pits. And you can't uh, use this area as a latrine because all of these are unsightly uses. Hmm. And then uh, people actually will tell you that uh, there were guards in uh, that would not allow you to, for instance, fish or take fuel wood. So they were only kept for certain kinds of people to use, uh, privileged people to use for recreation. They were not allowed to be open for all other kinds of uses. Mm. And slowly this gating led to an alienation. So people who are next to the lakes, who depended on them for all their uses, became, uh, they stopped depending on them. They migrated to other areas where they didn't have these restrictions. Mm. Based through, there is a caste, which is uh, the fisherman caste they really migrated progressively further and further from the city into more and more peri-urban and rural landscapes as they got displaced as they were deprived of their rights to fishing.
3: Hmm.
2: So this entire trend that you can trace with colonialism then gets worse post-independence because then the Indian state takes hmm. over but they keep many of these attitudes and start in fact take, enforcing hmm. them uh, more colonially than the co- uh, than the colonial hmm.
1: empire was doing. Is there a difference between for example uh, the way Haider Ali mm. looked at gardens because mm. he is apparently, yes. you know, the LALBAG for example. Yes. And the, the British, the way they looked at gardens. What kind of a difference would you see? There's a lot of to...
2: difference. So if you look at, uh, for instance, Hyder Ali is a really good example because both Hyder and Tipu also got in plants from across the world because of their other connections with uh, you know, so Tipu's for instance with the French uh, brought in so many different kinds of economically important plants and so did the British. But I think Haider and Tipu had a different focus because they were interested in so many aspects that were social, ecological, as well as uh, just economic. And I'll give you some examples, for instance. So Haider Ali, they say, created and He was very interested in rose hybrids. And he was fascinated by this whole process of hybridization of different kinds of plants. And he personally experimented and was supposed to be personally very knowledgeable in this process of rose hybridization. But he preferentially employed orphans, young boys as gardeners and he said because they have lost their parents in all of these frequent battles that they have and so this was a career option that they he was giving them a social option as well as trying to do this you know this experimentation and hybridization they also used these gardens as a a, a sign of kingly prestige and power so they you know so they were areas of horticulture of orchards of the best fruits that would be there as well as uh, areas of economic importance. So, for instance, you'd try to get eucalyptus. So you'd get cypress trees. You'd get those kinds of things. The British had a much more narrower focus initially. So, when Lalbagh, for instance, when they take over Lalbagh, there are actually instructions to Cameron, who was the superintendent of Lalbagh from uh, London, which say don't expel don't use this for all kinds of you know wasteful experimentation just focus on economic plants. don't waste your attention on or you know you can't get anything else if you think it's not economic just don't even bother it's not mm-hmm. worth uh, looking at so they are very focused on that over time as they then uh, abandon it completely uh, somebody else takes it over a private major war uh, war from the um, uh, private jet uh, makes a private purchase of it mm-hmm. and then deeds it back to the British government. Then they start planting more and more uh, in this area, and then they make it a pleasure garden. So then it it gets this dual function. The economic importance actually goes down over time, and it becomes they have a menagerie with a chimpanzee, with, a, oh, sorry, with mm. an orangutan, mm. and it's open to the public. And uh, you know, a lot of other things. Lalbag really becomes a zoo and uh, the spark for everybody to come and visit a pleasure area. Mm. But that takes a lot of time to change, and the focus, uh, though, on you know, just regular people accessing it and using these gardens as places so getting fruit and all that all that really completely mm. disappears really over time uh,
1: when did the idea of the commons grow and then when was it when was it begun to be infringed upon
2: we don't know when uh, the ideas of land as a commons because it's gomala land. land for Go example Mara, the exactly, Mysore true. kings they have yes.
1: large tracts where yes. which was supposed to be
2: so we don't know historically when these evolved, but we, we do know that this is a very old tradition across not just South Asia, but all ancient settled locations across the world. There's always been this idea of any natural resource to be a community resource. So you would have, for instance, a typical landscape in South India, and which is very typical of a Bengaluru landscape, you have a la- lake or a tank. That is a commons because everybody can fish there. Everybody can draw water from there. Next to that, on the east and west sides, you will have two very large open wells. And they're typically for different caste communities because the village is also stratified. But they're also commons resources. There are cemeteries next to these. That is also caste stratified. But again, for within that particular caste group, that's a public resource. That's a community resource. You will have Gundotops, which uh, the Mysore government uh, actually Hyder, its uh, oral history says that it's a tradition that Hyder started. And uh, But uh, later, the, the Mysore government aggressively promoted it. Kundu are these village forests, which is a grove of economically important fruiting trees. So it's typically jackfruit or mango or, uh, you know, those kinds of fruiting trees, tamarind. Mm-hmm. And uh, you are allowed to cut one every so few years for uh, construction of some houses in the village. Otherwise, the village would get fruits from it. Mm-hmm. And children would play, people would graze. You would have a gaumala land, a grazing land attached mm-hmm. to it. All of these, this entire landscape, so the well, the tank, the uh, Kalyani, the Gaumala land, the Gundotop, the cemetery, this entire Mm. thing was a commons landscape. And uh, everybody could access it with a preferential, you talk about the landless and the poor, they clearly say that they were giving special rights in the village. So if you didn't have land, you could cultivate some vegetable or some ragi or something near the Gundotop. Mm. You could have a preferential right to grazing. And there would be... some connection, some uh, um, collection of, um, of the caste imbalance. So for instance, uh, irrigation from the lake was managed by a person called the Nirganti, And the Nirganti was typically someone from the lower caste community, yeah, the mm. more disadvantaged caste mm. groups. But they, as a compensation for all this work that they would do in terms of maintain, monitoring who got which irrigation water and maintaining all of these irrigation networks, they would get preferential rights to irrigation in certain areas. Mm. So, there was this balance that was done within the community based on these commons things, which were, again, like I said, preferentially for landless or certain disadvantaged groups Mm -hmm. in many cases. I don't want to romanticize this because there's also a lot of, uh, you know, literature, especially like Dalit uh, uh, songs, for instance, that people have studied that uh, point to the fact that uh, these commons are actually maintained by the... Mm -hmm forced involuntary sort of uh, labor mm-hmm. of a lot of these disadvantaged groups. And in fact, you also have very disturbing stories that we still hear every lake that you go around to mm-hmm. of sacrifices of a pregnant woman of a, or of a small child uh, that was buried alive or uh, somehow sacrificed in these lakes. There are lakes where people will tell you walk quietly because, you know, the child mm-hmm. will cry. And you. So it's very disturbing uh, stories that you hear. But having said that, so there was this access to commons which somewhere disappeared during the colonial time. You get a sense of this. So, for instance, if you're looking at uh, some British administrators and their records, they talk about this practice, which is a standard Indian practice of, uh, you know, you have a a field, it's growing some particular crop during the rainy season. The rest of the time, there's a stubble. Mm. And not just your cows, but other cows can also come in and move around from Mm. that community. So, everybody's cows eat Mm. on everybody's fields, you know. Mm. And that way, again, the landless have some chance of having some cows so there are um, so for instance especially kaban talks about this is a miserable practice that is extremely harmful for and he advocates privatization saying each person should have their private field and protect mm-hmm. it otherwise the fertility of the soil gets actually completely impacted as mm-hmm. well as the health of the cows that they have mm-hmm. the mysore government is, in contrast you can clearly see during a time of famine the king opens his forest and says, it's the time of famine, so all the cattle can come in and eat from my forest. Mm-hmm. And so they understood the importance of the commons as providing security in times of stress, and uh, which the British colonial government did not realize, or did not choose to realize. Uh, over time, with independence and post-independence, this is completely gone. So for instance, uh, even if you talk about till the 1980s, it was fairly common that Trees on the streets would give yeah. some firewood for migrant labor or, you know, for people who would just pluck wood, wood yeah. off that and then uh, use it for uh, cooking. Cattle also, there are stories that talk about, for instance, in Malaysia, there is this uh, person who's written a Canada documentation of his mother's life in the 1920s. And when the cows used to go along the road, she would keep an alarm. So she would wake up at four o'clock mm. and uh, she would go... To collect the dung. cow dung mm. and use that just not only for her own cooking but then also to generate a little bit of income for herself. For mm. people. All of these traditions now are impossible because you have your own cows which are privately owned, dung is not shared. Mm. And uh, there is, in fact, a practice that is uh, of the uh, municipality to say that uh, you don't plant fruiting trees, you don't plant plucking of flowers and branches, etc., as prohibited in public spaces. So you can only look at recreational, uh, you know, you can only admire the beauty. Mm. All the trees we used to plant, you know, tamarind, for instance, was so common across uh, Indian roads. They are not going to be planted in Indian cities anymore because they say people will fight over the fruits. Mm. So there is a sort of uh, place uh, where the possibilities for community use have completely shrunk. If you want to plant fruiting trees along lakes, uh, local lake uh, man, you know, local mm. community groups that are managing lakes uh, and uh, resident welfare associations managing parks are told not to plant fruiting trees mm. or medicinal plants because this will all lead to conflicts. People will come and pluck them, and that's a bad thing. Mm.
1: What do you what do you say to that?
2: That's really, I would think, that's extremely misguided because mm. if some people can pluck it and use it, and others can't, it's better than having nobody having access to it, right? Mm. And, uh, in fact, I remember when uh, we had gone together to Mysore, uh, several of us, and we had Mm. um, seen, we had gone to Karanji Lake. Mm. And there was this person uh, who was jogging around the lake. And uh, I saw him, he he just leaned over the fence, there was a neem tree, he plucked a twig of it, put it in his pocket and continued jogging. Mm. And it was so nice, it was a very natural thing to do that he would probably go home and use a bit of that neem to do something. Maybe he Mm. had a cold or he wanted, Mm. I I don't know, whatever medicine was used. And that is the kind of use we used to have in Bangalore. And mm. uh, it's now remaining in Mysore, which is very
1: nice to see. Yeah. You're talking about the British, uh, once they won the rights to collect revenues, mm-hmm. that was when the whole thing started. Like, yes. 1757, 1765, yeah. around that. Because there was a more socially oriented management right. by the Mughals and the others. Mm-hmm. Whereas the British, they believed that they, they have to be ruthless, bureaucratic about it. Yes. And enhance the revenue so most of the famines that have uh, occurred especially in the the 1700s uh, they have been ascribed to this and what do you think you think we have drawn lessons from their bureaucracy
2: we have lost the capacity for humanity somewhere and uh, they clearly had this as a very strategic process of king making also i mean the king knew that if um, several, you know, if a large percentage of his population is dying, that's not a very good uh, way for him to maintain the long-term security of his empire. Hmm. And um, it's very clear how Bangalore is a very good natural experiment to see how differently the the Mysore kings viewed the management of nature from the British. So, for instance, around Sampangi Lake, there is a time when the British uh, regiment is saying, please drain the lake, it has too much water. And uh, there was this lovely grassy ground, we wanted to play polo. But now we'll go back to uh, Britain after three years, we would never have had uh, played polo. And uh, so, the British government actually starts uh, recommending the draining of the lake for this regiment to play polo. As well as uh, for their bungalows that are built there and a brewery to be protected from the flats. At that point, there's a group of gardeners, uh, the native uh, gardening uh, community, the Vanikolas or uh, otherwise called the Tiglars, who actually have a representation of the Mysore government. And uh, they say we have been, you know, so several of them sign in Canada. The letter is written in English, but there's a number Mm -hmm. of them signing in Canada, Mm -hmm. which basically says that uh, these are our traditional rights. We used to irrigate and cultivate our uh, you know, orchards in this uh, lake, mm. how can you drain it for somebody else's use when it is supposed to be our use? Mm. And then the Mysore government writes to the British saying, who asked you to construct these bungalows and these breweries in this place if you knew it was going mm. to be flooded because this is actually lake property. Mm. And this discussion goes back and forth and uh, during that, it's also pragmatic for the Mysore government because they say these are important taxpayers for us. So why we should be looking mm. at our taxpayer's interest that is the horticulturalist. Mm. Mm. We don't know what happened. We see the debate. We don't know how it was addressed. But we don't know, do not know that eventually the British did play polo. The, okay. And there was a discussion of that. So we still he, have the brewery. And we still have
1: the brewery. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suspect it is, is uh, that uh, near Caban Park? Is
2: that the brewery? or some other brewery? I don't know if it's the same brewery or it's a different one. It's one, very, actually, it's it's one right? of the
1: oldest breweries yeah. in
2: Bangalore.
1: Yeah. So, anyway, so you have already spoken about social exclusion. And this whole question of... Uh, of pollution, for example, of uh, the natural resources and uh, pollution in general of the urban Bangalore. When do you think you can say it really started? Not, I'm not talking of today's proportions.
2: One thing we've seen if you look at the old maps of Bangalore is a clear, uh, you know, when you start taking the local loop of dependence, then you start getting pollution. So I'll give you a clear example. You know, from when Kempe came all the way till 17, uh, so till 1892, you see an increase in the number of lakes, steady increase. Whichever successive rulers come, you know, they make the city a better place to live. Mm -hmm. And more and more people start coming in. And the number of lakes increase because you have to obviously provide more water to the people. At some point, you start seeing that uh, when Colonel Sankey constructs Sankey Lake, and this is the late part of the 19th century, he makes a comment that now this is the last. We've done the Miller's tent, we've done the Sankey Lake, we've done, you know, various uh, other constructions of lakes and water bodies. Now there is no other site that is not constructed, that is suitable for a lake that I can find to build any new lakes in city. Hmm. So you run out of space. And then there's a year, so three, four years of successive drought around the 1890s, turn of the 1890s. So then in 1892, the Mysore government says, we're having all of this shortage of water. Let's start getting, uh, constructing a dam and bringing piped water in. And that's when the Hesalghatta dam, uh, the reservoir is built by constructing <coughs> a dam across the Arkavati. They take the Hesalghatta, they take three other uh, small tanks near that and pa- pipe all this water. It's originally planned only for the native city, the area, the Pete area, which is under the Mysore government jurisdiction. <coughs> but the British then make a request. They say, we'll give you areas like Sanki Lake and all that. You could take them over, <coughs> but give us also piped water. And so, pipe water comes in for the entire city of Bangalore. Hmm. Suddenly, there's a complete change. Now, you can get water from outside. There is no reason to maintain water inside. And uh, lakes that were considered worthy, you know, worthy of worship, they were maintained every year. There was a budget set aside for maintenance of lakes that was very large. Mm. Suddenly, that entire thing disappears. So the discussion in the archives becomes one of and You know, lakes become talked about malarial and their sources, cesspools of sewage. Mm. In wells, in fact, during the time of the plague, people throw corpses into wells. A place, you know, something that was so central, hmm. and uh, you see that in there's a map we have of 1888. There were close to 1,500 wells in the area of the city and the of that time. By the 19 by 1935, that goes down from from about 1,500 to about 500, and by 2015, it comes down to about 50.
1: Five zero. Five zero. Hmm. So
2: from uh, you know thousand five hundred to about fifty wells. That's all you have in this old part. That is the yeah. old city the the area. The Gandhi area. And that's the condominium.
1: Quite uh, shallow. I mean, you can yeah. access you water. Can and, and of these kinky. 50
2: wells that we find uh, hmm. of these old wells that have persisted many of them are uh, you know they are persisted but they have no water so there is hmm. a lovely well in Lalbagh for instance which is a lovely open well with steps but it is crumbling it has got uh, lots of leaf litter thrown in hmm. these can be revived with very little effort hmm. and become beautiful water bodies that people can access And I you know, it's but fun. how
1: how that's that is the question I would like to ask you next is how can an ordinary citizen Begin to actually think ecologically, you know, and really play a role in restoring uh, the ecology of this.
2: city. There's clearly so much that I, that we can do. So uh, in the last uh, one of the last chapters of the book, I chronicle some extraordinary people and organizations that have done so much for the city. And uh, you know, I'll stick to people right now, since we're just talking about you know what can an ordinary citizen do. There is um, a lady Honama Govindaya who is now in her nineties. And uh, she was a homemaker, mother of 10 children, who was also a single mother because she lost her husband. And she fought a case all the way to the Supreme Court to save a local park from being taken away. Jainagar. In Janegar. And you know, so how, I asked her, how did you do it? And uh, how did you find the time, first of all, in the middle of all of these other Mm -hmm. things? And she said, look, Harini, if you want time for something that you really are passionate for, you always make time, don't you, in your daily life? So Mm -hmm. this was important for me. Mm -hmm. And she says she was highly influenced by Gandhi because when she was a small child, Gandhi had come visited into, their house. Yeah, visited.
1: Her son is a colonel in the army. He, is, he yes. retired B.J. Kumar. Ah, he was yes. my senior in school. Okay. I didn't know
2: that connection. <laughs> huh. Interesting. No, so she he didn't visit her house, but what he did was he came to the um, city railway station and she had run all the way with a small plant that she pulled out. She wanted to give him something. Mm. So she was playing in the field, she found a plant with a flower, she said, I was so excited instead of cutting the flower, I pulled out the plant by its roots and ran to him. Mm. And he picked her up in the air and he said, Hey and then he mm. shook her in the air and patted her and put her down and mm. took the flower. Mm. And she said from that time she started wearing khadi, she gave away all her jewels. She was just five or mm. six. And she was so profoundly influenced by him. Mm. And so I think this is, you know, as an ordinary citizen, there's so much that can be done. Another gentleman called me once uh, out of the blue and he was telling me a story of how he moved back to Bangalore after a long time to find that just outside his house, there was a garbage dump and it was right next to his kitchen. And so they couldn't cook and, you know, the stench was unbearable. So three times he got it cleared up at his own expense. But he found that people were used to dumping garbage. Then they continued to do that. Then he thought of making it a spot for nature. See, he had a little bench. He created a little stone bench there, planted some plants, made it mm. attractive and landscape. There was a lot of greenery in this road corner, outside corner. Mm. And then now he says it's become a spot of social activity. So a lot of senior citizens sit there during mm. the evenings. Mornings, mothers come with their kids and sit there. And people tell him that now, formally, the two sides of the road didn't know each other, and now it's become a community place where everybody
3: meets mm, just
2: mm. by having greenery. Mm. And you know, there's so many other things. So people get together to plant, uh, to collect, uh, take a small ownership of a small street in front of, parts of the street in front of them. Mm. They say we'll plant trees and we'll water this, or you know, a local lake that community. So many communities across Bangalore are getting together to revive their local lakes to work with the cooperator, to pressurize them to give, you know, release funds and actually work with the BBMP to then say that you need to restore this lake. Yes. N- and a uh, number of these lakes now have habbas across Bangalore, mm. which is a very nice concept which I started about two, three years ago, where you find that, uh, you know, as many t- as two to three thousand people during an entire day visit a lake, Mm. and uh, learn about how to grow organic food, how to do composting. So there are notes from a larger number of sustainability activities are uh, coming across Bangalore. So it seems like there's a lot that can be done as an ordinary citizen, working alone or working with a group of people. And when you do that, you get to know your neighbors. In a way, unfortunately, Mm. our city is fragmenting. We don't know our neighbors. Mm. So if you talk to people around these lakes, they'll tell you that because they met at the lake every day, They started jogging groups. They started groups working on solid waste management. They started groups working on traffic management. They started groups working on education and government schools. All of this happened because you met neighbors whom you Mm would otherwise never have met every day at the lake and conversation started about something Mm -hmm. in a green environment, which inspires a lot of other ways of thinking.
1: Now, uh, see, this is about a lake where people have an opportunity to congregate. Now, for example, in in this locality, in Sanchayanagar, people bring their garbage and they just look around and see that there's no one. They dump it and go. Now, this is also probably because uh, they don't live there. And also because, uh, as you are saying, people don't know neighbours anymore. Hardly. Mm -hmm. So how would you look at citizens' initiative in terms of a mindset? I
2: I think the... It's very difficult to know where to start with these things, but somewhere the solution has to be to get to know your neighbors by starting on some greening activities. If you create green spots, so for, uh, there are you know other groups that work on these creating these green spots across Bangalore, you know hmm. beautifying or uh, you know working on these uh, spot fixes as they call them across the city. So ugly Indian is a good example, hmm. where they go to a place which they find is particularly as a nice you know it's like hmm. being used as a public toilet or it's being hmm. used as a garbage dumping center, and Convert it, so paint it, make it beautiful, but very importantly, green it. Mm. Once you start planting things, people somehow feel delicate about dumping trash there. Mm -hmm. And that really helps because people then get together also as a spot fix. Typically, these spot fixes involve local shopkeepers. So Mm. if you come there and you participated in a spot fix as a shopkeeper, Mm. donated some paint or donated labor and actually planted a plant, then you turn out to be very vigilant about actually monitoring the area.
1: Mm Uh, can you actually recommend some when you say greening of a place? What some plants, some trees that yes. could actually contribute much better to those? You know that is a regulatory uh, provisioning. Of course, you say provisioning is a is a problem. So if you have a tamarind tree, there's going to be a conflict. But you still, it's, it's a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. How would you? What kind of trees? What kind of uh, uh, plants would you recommend?
2: This is has to be dependent on what the people need and what the site area of the places right so for instance uh if you're looking at certain so as i said there are four kinds of services that you can think of that uh, trees on uh, spots of nature provide and that's these are uh, so regulatory services which is you know clearing the air and maintaining the climate balance those kinds of things then there are uh, recreational and cultural services then there are um, so uh, provisioning services, which is the food, you know, providing you food and uh, fodder and medicinal plants and those kinds of things. And then there is uh, the supporting services. Support. Supporting mm-hmm. biodiversity, supporting soil quality and maintenance and those kinds of things. So it depends on which services you want to provide. So if you're thinking of, for instance, uh, biodiversity, you need to have something that is fruiting and flowering as much of the year around as you can. Mm-hmm. If you're thinking of something that is uh, contributing to regulatory services, for instance, reducing air pollution, you want something with a large canopy and you want something with a hairy canopy preferably so it can filter out these guys, you know, so mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. amount of pollution from the air trap a lot of the soot from the air. Mm-hmm. If you're thinking of provisioning services you need to think of uh, especially so if you look at uh, traditionally what we would have on the narrowest streets you would have trees like avocado mm-hmm. or trees like uh, so you know certainly the small nelikai the small mm-hmm. uh, gooseberry which people would plant outside their home so you could access them outside your home or Neem but other people going past on the street also could. And these roots mm-hmm. don't bother you. They don't dig mm-hmm. up, uh, you know, the plumbing mm-hmm. and uh, interfere with overhead uh, mm-hmm. lights. Mm-hmm. If you have larger spaces near a lake, plant a good old ficus, a banyan tree or a fig tree. Because mm-hmm. that supports so much other, you know. It, it grows hugely. You can't have them but growing in other places. Roots are, roots are huge. Yeah. Canopy is huge. Mm-hmm. But in addition, you can, uh, you know, so much biodiversity thrives on that. So that's a wonderful thing to plant in places like that. And, you know, a good tamarind and a good mango can serve as a playground. If you're looking at a lakeside, for instance, so my daughter's school, uh, for instance, they have a lot of trees that they use in the landscaping very strategically mm-hmm. and instead of having a lot of gym equipment and, pl- and you know, climbing equipment. Mm-hmm. Because you can do that. That's what children used to do. They used to climb on these trees. So they serve multiple functions. Mm-hmm. If you look at slums, you'll find that all the social congregation happens under a tree and they use a lot of nuge, for instance, a drumstick. Uh, Because the drumstick, you know, every part gives you something. So the leaves are nutritious Mm. and the drumsticks themselves can be cooked. The roots Mm. don't go in very deep. It gives you a nice canopy and kids can climb on this. So Mm. it's a multifunctional, very useful tree to plant in in slums.
1: slums. Okay, this is a lot of prescriptive suggestions have been made. And uh, from a descriptive perspective, description perspective, how do you look at human attitude, behavior, words.
2: As uh, nature is reducing very fast in Bangalore, you actually see a lot of people now beginning to talk about it. So you see that uh, there's a, as you know, for instance, we know that we have a huge water crisis, especially with the Skaveri River, water becoming so scarce now, uh, that people are now beginning to think of the fact that we need to do something to conserve our lakes because our water is coming from the ground and groundwater uh, is really really dwindling because we... uh, removing all these rainwater harvesting structures. So now people are beginning to talk of reviving lakes, reviving wells, and seeing what they can do in their neighborhoods, right? Similarly, as air pollution is increasing massively, people are now thinking that you and it's becoming, you know, when you get summer heat waves that are coming in. This summer, we had a particularly bad heat wave. Now people are talking about the need for plantation. And uh, so now you see that there are a lot of citizen drives at tree plantation that are being spread across bangalore in much greater numbers than they were last you know the last few years so i think there is hope i always feel that there is hope and one must feel i think there is hope because mm-hmm. if they don't you know if we don't and you give up what is left mm-hmm. you can't afford to live in a city without trees and without nature mm-hmm. and uh, so we must have hope and convince others to have hope so we do something but i do see having said that a lot of people are putting in efforts mm-hmm. what i do see is that the lack of a certain organic knowledge about trees And for instance, if you look at uh, the generation of people in their 80s and 90s or even in their 70s, they have a very good knowledge about what species to plant, where, in which environments, how to maintain them, how to grow. There was not this big deal made out of organic food, but it was naturally organic. You knew how to compost, you knew how Hmm. to deal with things, you didn't waste, you know. had a certain way of living that was uh, more in tune with nature and you knew, you had knowledge about such a wide set of species. Now people want to do something, but they know very little about what to do. They don't know. So you'll see them, you know, plantation drives. People are planting silver oak and acacia on, the, on lake beds. Or in the middle of tree, you know, in medians, they're planting these ficus trees that actually grow to giant sizes. So they, they're not supposed to be there on the median of the... Mm. So they don't know what to plant where. They don't know how to use it. They have a lack of knowledge is something. Since we don't have this informal way of... Of uh, you know, uh, parent to child, uh, neighbor to neighbor, of uh, communicating this knowledge. I think now is the time to start documenting this and writing some things like that, mm-hmm. because people now want to read about to and decide what to plant, and they don't have a sense of that.
1: Mm-hmm. And this
2: is, a, I think, we really need to be more systematic. Who
1: needs to take this initiative? So Ideally,
2: yeah. the BBMP Horticultural Department, you know, would mm-hmm. be. So if you look at it before. I know, for instance, my mother had done this training program in uh, Lal used to offer these training programs very routinely for uh, people across Bangalore, largely homemakers who had time-free, who had a garden, Mm. who wanted to learn. You could go there and learn and do this three-week course. Mm. They should be out there doing this. They would do home visits and help you if you had a problem with your garden. And uh, so manuals like this, for instance, I mean, uh, I Mm. think uh, academics uh, like me can prepare them or NGOs can prepare them. Mm. But the knowledge is really with these horticultural staff. Some of the Mm. older Mm. staff have an incredible amount of knowledge. And if they prepare something like this, it would be much more widely
1: used. So how does Bangalore, for example, compare with other large uh, uh, urban cities?
2: The studies that we have done show some interesting commonalities and some differences. So definitely Bangalore has a lot of green cover compared to many other cities. It has a lot of biodiversity in terms of the varieties of trees. If you compare them with areas of, you know, with published literature, the many, many cities with a lot of tree cover tend to have a small, relatively small set of species. Maybe 6 to 10 species account for 80 to 90% of all the trees. In Bangalore, that's not the case. You have close to 100 different species that you can easily see across the streets, across the parks. And uh, they all contribute quite a good amount. So it's, it's very diverse. That is changing though. If you look at the new sets of species people, now the BBMP, for instance is practically only planting hungi everywhere. While well, hongay is a good tree and I have no problems with it, you should never plant only one species everywhere. And so this is becoming a problem. We are homogenizing that unique quality of Bangalore is being lost. The other thing that we had was a lot of useful plants. Again, if you compare with home garden studies or slum studies that we have done with other uh, cities mm. across the world the focus was on ornamental species but in bangalore you find that people used to plant at least in the private spaces a lot mm. of useful trees mm. so trees are used for fruit or medicine or the worship you yeah. know some some use or the other but now that is again disappearing in people t- in nurseries for instance a, you tend to find a, an emphasis on various ornamental plants again which is also simplification of use mm. and this becomes also a problem
1: so you uh, think the future can be salvaged?
2: Definitely. I always think You're the future optimistic can about. the one nice thing I think in a city is if you grow trees, if you plant trees today you can see the effects in ten years. Whereas a forest will take about thirty years to regrow in a city because you keep watering mm. it frequently mm. and maintaining it well, if you plant the right trees in ten years we can we can make a lot of difference.
1: As a scholar, what is the one piece of suggestion advice that you would give everyone that if they pursue will make things better for this city and for all cities
2: i think cities fragment us socially tremendously they fragment us ecologically also but because they fragment us socially so i think the one piece of advice that i have found personally very helpful is to get out and know your neighborhood Find out, for instance, who is your local cooperator, who is your local MLA, who is the school teacher in your government school, who is the health worker in your local hospital. How can you work with all of these people, whether it's your garbage or your traffic or your trees, to fix, find something that you can do. However limited in whatever time that you have, there is still something that you can do and go out and start doing it. Because even if you if the activity that you're getting involved in does not move very far, you'll find you make a lot of friends And uh, we'll spur off other activities that do, which in time will change things. Mm -hmm. So just really that, to go out and do something with somebody.
1: Excellent. I hope uh, people who will listen to this, um, so no caste, will go out and meet people and get to know their neighborhood. Thank you so much, uh, Harini Nagendra. I really enjoyed talking to you and uh, thank you once again.
3: Thank you, Shankar. It was a real pleasure.